The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Would you join me in prayer again this morning, please, church? Father, we thank you that our voices resound to you, that you give ear to the praises of your people and to our prayers. And even this morning, we are are studying, looking at how Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus. And it's my prayer that as we look at Paul's prayer, that we would grow in our desire for prayer, in our effectiveness, Lord, in this great ministry that you have called us to. So send your Holy Spirit. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts this morning. Grant us a greater understanding, not just intellectual, but practical, that we would find great application in your word, that we would be grown in our holiness before you, Lord God, in our conduct, in our seeking after you, in our prayers for our fellow believers. Use this time for your glory now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. So last week, Jason took us through verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1, and and that ended Paul's first long sentence, right? Ephesians chapter 1 3 through 14 in the Greek. That's one long sentence. We arrived at the period at the end of Jason's sermon, and now we begin the next sentence, which is another long sentence. It goes from verses 15 through 23 through the end of this chapter. This morning, we're going to look at the first part of this, verses 15 through 19. And if you'll recall with me, as we were working through verses 3 through 14, Paul was giving praise to God for all of the great things that God had done. Verse 3 begins, blessed be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is extolling God. This is giving praise to God. And why? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Paul spent this long sentence opening up what those spiritual blessings are and expanding upon them for the benefit of the Ephesians And for our benefit, as we look at these, as we read these, as we study these, all that God has done for us. This leads, I think, quite naturally to verse 15, where Paul then says, for this reason, based on and built upon everything that we've just looked at, Praise be to God for all that he has done for this reason, because I've heard of your faith and your love, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It leads to Paul prayer, praying. It leads to Paul in prayer to God. And so we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at verses 15 through 23 and seeing what was the the content of Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers. He first begins by giving thanks for the believers. 
And then in verses 17 through 19, it really moves to the content of of what it was that he was actually praying for them. And so just a a rough sketch here, in in verse 17, he's praying that they would have a greater knowledge of God. And then in verses 18 and 19, he is praying that they would have a greater knowledge of God's work. And that's broken up into three specific examples of God's work. Well, if you'll look with me to the beginning of this section, verse 15, Paul says, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now, this is really pretty remarkable. Where was Paul as he's writing this letter to the Ephesians? He's in Rome, maybe in house arrest, maybe in a prison cell. But even there, he says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and I have heard of your love towards all the saints. Even at such a a great distance, even at a place that was so confined, Paul still heard about these Ephesian believers. That's remarkable. What faith and and what love they had. Faith. Faith is that, that vertical relationship that we have with God. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. These believers were committed to the Lord Jesus. These believers were living lives that were in accordance with God's word. These believers were living with confidence in what God said he would do. They were living their lives really oriented toward God. We want to please God. We want to seek God. We want to honor God in all that we do. We want to have our our minds renewed by God's word. We want everything, all of our interaction in this horizontal plane, first of all, to be influenced by this relationship in the vertical plane. That is the relationship with God. So I've heard of your faith. That's the vertical. And he says, and of your love for all the saints. That's this horizontal plane. That's where we interact with each other. That's where we live in this world. Not of this world, but but in this world. And as we look at what Paul says, I would argue that love toward the saints is evidence of faith in the Lord Jesus. Love for the saints is evidence of faith in Jesus. Now, where do I get that from? I get it from Scripture. John, in his epistles, he he touched on this at several points in his writings. In his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, We can tell who are children of God. And who are children of the devil? How? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Those are pretty weighty words. It's not the only thing he says or the only place that he says it. Same chapter, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Why? How can we know this? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And then again, in chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
Love for all of the saints is evidence of faith in the Lord Jesus. That is what drives our love for the saints. And so I even want to encourage you in that. We can pray that God would increase our faith, that God would grow us in faith. And the result of that will be an increased love for the church. And I want to commend you, church, just thinking about Paul in a Roman prison and hearing of the faith and the love that the Ephesians had, the evidence that gave testimony to that. And as I thought about our church, Pillar Bible Fellowship, thinking of all that's been going on, job changes, home transitions, family adjustments, health challenges, parenting struggles, all of these things. Each of you have been uniquely gifted by God, and I see you using those gifts to serve one another in music ministry, in meal ministry, in hospitality, spreadsheets. Praise God for spreadsheets, prayer, and counsel, and encouragement, Love for the saints is evident here. And I praise God that I think we're continuing to grow in that. Not that we've arrived and now we're complacent or just comfortable. There's no more room for growth. No, there's no ceiling on love for the saints. But it is present here. It encourages me of of the faith that is here, of the growth in relationship with the Lord Jesus that is taking place. And Paul says, because I've heard of this faith and because I've heard of the love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, if we didn't live in reality, we might just think that Paul was looking at things through rose-colored glasses, that the Ephesian church was just perfect, faith and love, and Paul's giving thanks to God for them without ceasing. They must have been the perfect church, right? Read Ephesians, and you'll see that's not the case. I had to remind myself of this, right? This was a real church. As you move forward in the book of Ephesians, Paul begins to give marital counseling, wives in relationship to husbands, husbands in relationship to wives. In chapter 6, he's giving instruction to children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, In verse 5 of chapter 6, he moves to the employee and employer relationship, slaves and masters. So it's not that these believers make up the perfect church. That's not the case. But even with their shortcomings, even with the sin that's present, as it is for all of us in every church and every, every life, Paul was still able to give thanks for them. He gave thanks for the Ephesian church. Far from a perfect church, problems and shortcomings, but Paul, his first thought toward, toward them was thanksgiving. I gave thanks to God, for you. Paul prayed like this for many churches. It wasn't only the Ephesians. He starts out his letter to the Corinthians. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, if you know your Bibles and you know Corinth, It's remarkable that Paul was giving thanks for the Corinthians. You think if there's any church that he might just get right to to the 
hard business of giving correction, it might be the Corinthians. There were a lot of problems in the church at Corinth. But no, he begins by saying, I give thanks. And that wasn't insincere. That wasn't just Paul trying to set him up so that he could cut him down. That's not the case. It was a genuine love that he had and a sincere thanks for them. In Philippians chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership and the gospel from the first day until now. Church, if if we want to learn more about prayer, I, I would start here. Give thanks for one another to God as you remember each other in prayer. To spend some time in prayer just giving thanks for your brothers and sisters as you look around you. Even this morning, and you, you see the individuals and the families that make up the church here and give thanks to God. And we can grow in our ministry of prayer in that way. This is evidence a faith in Jesus. Paul praying for so many churches in this way. It's evidence of his faith in Jesus expressed in love for the church. Love for the church is evidence of faith. And love for the church is stimulated by prayer for the church. As we spend time praying for one another, we grow in faith, and we grow in love for each other. So Paul begins by expressing his gratitude of what he recognizes. And then in verse 17, he begins toward this petition. We get to the content of Paul's prayer. And the first thing that he prays for them is a greater knowledge of God, a greater knowledge of God. Let's read verse 17, follow along with me. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He's praying to God the Father, the Father of glory. He'll expound on this more later, but this God with immeasurable power, this Father of glory, and that he would give you, Ephesians, a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him, that they would grow in their understanding of God, their knowledge of God, their relationship with God. Paul had spent a considerable amount of time in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, he was there for two years teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. And we read in Acts 19 verse 10, two years of teaching so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul was effective in his teaching ministry. And anyone who wanted could come and could listen and could hear and could grow in their knowledge of God. But even two solid years at St. Paul's Seminary daily in the Hall of Tyrannus did not come anywhere near exhausting this great doctrine of God or getting the Ephesians to a place where they had no more that they needed to know about God. There was still so much more. So much more for them to grow in. And it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's not just understanding. It's not just like we read a history book and learn facts or data, historical figures. No, this knowledge of God is practical. 
This knowledge of God is experiential. It's as we spend time in relationship with God, we get to know more of what he is like. Not just being able to quote Bible verses or tell of things that he has done, but that we grow in relationship with him. This is a relational knowledge. And he's asking God to give them the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom, and the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. Do you ever, like I do, get into ruts in prayer where you just feel like you're chugging along on the same path and you just can't get out? Like prayers begin to seem monotonous, repetitive. As I was considering this, I think one of those reasons is because my prayer then can tend to focus too much on myself. Too much on myself, not enough on God. And so Paul here gives a great example for us. He was praying for the Ephesians that they would grow in knowledge of God, that God would send his Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of revelation, that they would know God more. If growing in the knowledge of God becomes the content of our prayer, church will never run out of things to pray for. Never. If we're praying that we would grow in our knowledge of God, it's inexhaustible. We're going to spend all of eternity and we'll never come to the end of it. Think about the attributes of God and pick one out. Make it the focus of your prayer for yourself or or for your brother or your sister. When community group asks how they can be praying for you, don't give the answer of, "Ah, I'm good, or I can't really think of anything. Think of an attribute of God and say, I'm going to take hold of this and ask that they pray for your growth in knowing that aspect of God to a greater degree. God's power, God's promise, God's presence, his love, his wrath, God's grace, God's mercy, his fatherhood, his holiness. We could go on, but you'll never come to the end of it. And I would suggest, church, isn't this what we need in the times that we live in? A greater focus upon a knowledge of God? Headlines constantly changing, so many things that seem to be in flux and in transition, but God remains the same. And to grow in our knowledge of him is to have something that we can really grasp onto and hold tight to. And so Paul's first prayer for the Ephesians, and I think it's excellent for us to make it our first prayer as well, is that we would grow in the knowledge of God. That should be the aim of our life, to grow in the knowledge of God. And then in verses 18 and 19, he moves into this second prayer for a greater knowledge of God's work. For a greater knowledge of God's work. Verse 18 His prayer, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And then these three specifics. Look at them with me, if you will. Verse 18, that you may know first what is the hope to which he has called you. 
that you may know, second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you may know, thirdly, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That strikes us as odd, like eyes and hearts, not open, but, but enlightened. Like, this doesn't make sense. Paul needs an anatomy class. No, the heart, that's the, the center, the seat of, of our emotions, our, our will, our knowledge. And so he prays that the hearts, the eyes of their hearts would receive more and more light, that they might see more and more of the glorious work of God. And even as we grow older, it's typical that our eyes grow dimmer. We don't see as well as we used to. But the great thing is, You might need spectacles for reading, but the eyes of our hearts can continue to grow sharper and clearer and more insightful right up until the day of glory. That the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, that they would receive more and more light from God who is light. And then he gets into these three specifics. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Hope. Hope, as scripture uses the word, is quite different from the way that we speak of hope. Do you ever find yourself tossing that word out? I hope this, I hope that. And we tend to use that as a, boy, I I hope it comes to pass, but I don't know. There's no assurance. There's, There's just a wish, I hope. But that's not the way scripture uses the word hope. Hope is not that. Hope is a confident expectation in guaranteed good. God says, I will do this. I will bring about good. And we can have the confident expectation that that will be accomplished. That is the Christian hope. It's not something that's wavering. It could go this way. Oh, it could go this way. Right? We, we spent a long night a couple Tuesdays ago watching election results, and you see the votes coming in, and oh, it could go this way, oh, it could go that way, and we waited days and days and days, and, and which way is it going to go? I hope it comes out like this. Our Christian life isn't that way, church. It's a guaranteed good. God says, I will do this. I will perform. And we can have confidence that God will do as he has said. The Christian hope is not uncertain. It's fixed. It's guaranteed. The author of Hebrews speaks about our hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you in place. Even when everything else around you is moving, waves are beating against you, hope, hope, that God will accomplish what he has spoken, that it is a guaranteed good, anchors us. This is uniquely Christian. This is distinctly Christian. 
I want to impress this upon you this morning, church, because as we live as people of hope, others don't get us. They watch, they look, they observe, they they ask questions, and they wonder how, why, what? How How can they live? Like they they seem relaxed in such tumultuous times? Why is it that they can carry themselves in the way that they can? Even as they go through difficulty, adversity, uncertainty in this life. And they wonder. And hope is a beautiful thing. It it finds expression in our lives. It does. When we go through tribulation, when we go through difficulty, yeah, we may not be high-fiving, smiles from ear to ear. But this hope anchors us. It secures us. It grounds us. And the world does not have that, but they want that, and they admire that. This hope is uniquely and distinctly Christian. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that they would know What is the hope to which he has called them? This is an eternal hope. This is a hope that brings us to our final place in the presence of God for all of eternity. This is a hope that that conquers all of our fears. This is a hope that conquers all of our trials, all of our weaknesses, all of our enemies. Paul, in writing to the Romans, he tells them to rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. And you know what he paired that up with? I think this is telling. And I think it's good for the times that we live in. Rejoice in hope, comma, be patient in tribulation. When do you need to most call on that hope? In tribulation. And he didn't end there. Rejoice in hope, comma, be patient in tribulation, comma, be constant in prayer. Those things go together. Our hope can allow us to be patient in tribulation because we don't live for the things of this world. And the ground may be shaking, but our hope is fixed and secure. And we can be constant in prayer, and we should be constant in prayer. And as we are constant in prayer, we can be more patient in tribulation, and we can rejoice more and more in the hope to which God has called us. His second prayer, the second part of verse 18, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, you've heard over the last couple of Sunday mornings, as we've looked at this inheritance, we've learned about this inheritance, you've heard this phrase, we get God, right? Right? It's glorious, it's beautiful, it's true, graciously true. 
But read this with me again. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul's saying that we are God's glorious inheritance. It's a little different. Not that we get God, which is gloriously, graciously, magnificently true, but here he's saying God gets us. Just going to let that marinate for a few seconds. Psalm 74, verse 2. The psalmist says, Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage, the people of God. Jeremiah 51 Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Deuteronomy 26 and verse 18, the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments. The King James says a peculiar people. I think that's right. Peter, in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 9, he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is true. This is gloriously true. As enthusiastic and excited as we are and should be that we get God, that that is part of our inheritance, that that is the the sum total of our inheritance, it's also true that God gets us the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God's looking forward to that day. God has accomplished this. Jesus, when he's praying in his high priestly prayer in in John chapter 17, listen to this. Father, praying to his heavenly father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, listen to this, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus knew where he was going. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And his prayer to his father before his betrayal before his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension to be present with God. He prays to his father, I desire that they may be with me where I am. Isn't that amazing to think about? Jesus is waiting. I can't wait till they're here with me where I am. This should encourage us. Teenager, are you feeling out of place at times? Teenage years are are tough. I remember those. Where do I fit? I'm going through these changes and I'm trying to make friends and I'm, I'm trying to find my place. You are part of God's glorious inheritance. Yes, you. Mom, struggling with child rearing and trying to do it well and not sure. Ah, oh, these, are, these are tough years. These are tough times. 
just nose down each day. You are part of God's glorious inheritance. Dad, struggling. Maybe struggling to provide for your family or or fighting to balance demands of life. You are part of God's glorious inheritance. If you're a believer here this morning that's young in the faith, God is thrilled about you. You're part of his glorious inheritance. You think, I'm not very mature in the faith. I don't know much. Even still, God is thrilled about you. Maybe you're a believer old and established in the faith. Then you think, ah, the thrill about me is probably worn off long ago. Like God knows me well enough. I know myself well enough. No, God is thrilled about you. You are part of his glorious inheritance. That excitement on God's part has not worn off. This is part of Paul's prayer for them, that they would know this. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I think that's a perspective that we need. Even as we walk around in this life, as we carry ourselves day to day, we're the king's kids, right? We belong to him. He's given a promise. He's going to accomplish it. And he's looking forward to that day when we're in his presence. As much as we, even more, I would say, even more than we look forward to that day, God looks forward to that day. And third and last, Paul's prayer in the first part of verse 19 What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Praying for the Ephesians that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Now, he spends the rest of verse 19 all the way through 23 really elaborating on that, opening it up more, expanding it more for us, and Seth is going to take us through that next week. But what I want us to see this morning is that Paul was praying that the Ephesians would see God's power, and he calls it the immeasurable greatness of his power. Think about that immeasurable greatness. I was thinking about this, and, and when Natalie and I lived in Bend, we, we put up some fencing at our, our first home that we bought, and we put in an electric fence, and I'm still not much of an electrician, but I was even less of an electrician then, and I took this cheap little voltmeter to go and make sure that the fence was working, and as soon as I touched the lead to the electric fence, it just popped. And that thing never worked again. Because it didn't have the capacity to measure the voltage. Just nothing. Dead, immeasurable greatness of God's power. The immeasurable greatness. I don't know how Paul could could heap it on more. It's not just power. No, if you think about God's power, that would be sufficient. Not just the greatness of his power, but the immeasurable greatness. There's no meter in the world that has the capacity to measure God's power. And as awesome as that is to think about God's power, it's not just God flexing his muscles so that we go, ooh, ah. No, this power is useful. This power is being directed. Immeasurable greatness of his power. Wow. 
but it's being put to work. What is the work that it's doing? Paul tells us the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. It's accomplishing things. It's at work on our behalf. It's working toward us who believe. It accomplishes our forgiveness. It accomplishes our sanctification. It accomplishes our adoption. The immeasurable greatness of God's power accomplishes our resurrection. It secures our inheritance. It defeats our enemy. It crucifies our flesh. It empowers our life. It equips his body. And it anchors our hope. The immeasurable greatness of God's power is at work toward us, for us, for our good, and for his glory. And that really then wraps back even to the beginning of Paul's prayer where he tells us who it is that he's praying to, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory. The Father of glory with this immeasurable greatness of power. This is who Paul is praying to, and it is who we also have the privilege of praying to. That we can come before this God, that we can glean from Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. That we can use this as an example or as a pattern for us in our prayer for one another. And I want to encourage us to do that this week, to continue to think on these prayers that Paul offered for his brothers and sisters in the church in Ephesus. And make those part of our prayer this week. We'll never run out of material to pray. Would you join me in prayer? And Father, even as my heart and mind were directed this week in in prayer for the church body and considering the church and the believer being the riches of God's inheritance, of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Lord God, I I do pray for Pillar Bible Fellowship that we would be greatly, radically encouraged by that truth. All that God has accomplished on our behalf for our benefit, so that we could be brought back into relationship. Thank you, Father, for your great and your glorious work. All that you have done to bring us back into right relationship with you and that you, Lord God, are excited about this. That you, Lord God, have worked from eternity past. That you have worked in time and space. That you have been accomplishing redemption. The story of salvation. So that we could be with you. And no doubt we get the better part of that deal. We have nothing to offer but our sins and our stains and our our weakness. But you look at us in Christ and you see us as perfect 
You see us as righteous. You see us as a treasured possession. You see us as a heritage. You call us an inheritance. Lord God, I pray that that truth would resonate in our hearts as we walk through this week. And I pray that that truth would also influence our interactions with each other. That we would be able to see each other more through your perspective, more through your eyes. And that when we, Lord God, are low, when we, Lord God, have doubts or fears or questions, when we feel unworthy, that this truth would lift us up. That it would be fixing our eyes upon you, Lord God. That would draw us up Cause us to lift up our hands in praise to you. Because we, though undeserving, are loved and prized by you. So that we can live in this world as those that belong to you. As those who have hope in you as those that are able to love others selflessly, sacrificially, because it's your power, your immeasurably great power at work toward us. Father, continue to grow us as a church in faith and in love. Send your Holy Spirit to give us a greater understanding, insight, and revelation into the knowledge of you, our God and our maker. Refine us, sanctify us more completely that we might better reflect you to all of those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.